Chapter 28, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28, Politics, 1880 to 1910, a resume. As stated in the preceding chapter, the Constitution of 1879 made a sincere attempt to remedy the grievances of which the people of the state complained. To this end, it provided for a more equitable system of land assessment, placed the sale of water for irrigation purposes under official regulation, curtailed, to some degree, the right of the public service corporations to fix rates, declared lobbying a felony, forbade special legislation, and greatly restricted other powers of the Senate and Assembly. In dealing with the issues arising from the transportation monopoly, the framers of the Constitution made many radical changes in the old order. Railroads were declared common carriers and forbidden to combine with steamship lines or among themselves to hinder competition. Discrimination in rates or service was prohibited. Passes could no longer be granted to state officials. Rates, once lowered to stifle competition, could not be raised again without the sanction of the state. Finally, no officer, stockholder, or employee of a railroad was permitted to furnish supplies or material of any kind to the company with which he was connected. The most significant extension of public control over the railroads lay, however, in the constitutional provision for a state board of railroad commissioners, with ample powers to regulate rates, examine into accounts, and prevent unlawful discriminations of every sort. As formally established by the Legislative Act of April 15, 1880, this board consisted of three members, elected every four years. The creation of this commission was considered a great victory for the people, and for a time there was much rejoicing that a method had at last been found to deal with the railroad monopoly. Following the adoption of the Constitution, thirty years went by before the state experienced another startling political upheaval. In the meantime, many of the economic conditions against which the agitation of 1878 had been directed gradually disappeared. The Chinese invasion, as already explained, was checked by federal legislation. Many of the large land holdings were subdivided into small ranches and sold to meet the demands of a constantly increasing population. Water rights became more stabilized, and the development of diversified forms of agriculture improved materially the status of the rural population. From a political standpoint, however, conditions showed but slight improvement. The standards of the time tolerated many practices which present-day opinion outlaws, Moreover, the system of party organization and the electoral machinery then in vogue were not especially adapted to making the government responsive to popular control. For the most part, during this period, the state was under the control of the Republican Party, with the Democrats gaining an occasional governorship or electing an occasional United States senator. But under neither party was there much change in the fundamental conditions. There is not much that divides the parties now, truly said Collis B. Huntington some years before his death in 1900, but the seven great reasons. Those are the five loaves and the two fishes. And it need scarcely be added that Huntington knew whereof he spoke. To account for the low tone of politics and government within the state, 
the people of California fell back upon their old antipathy to the central southern Pacific railroads, whose builders had early entered the field of politics. The first concern of these men was to obtain land grants, subsidies of various kinds, franchises, and similar concessions for the roads. Later, they became interested in preventing the reduction of rates, the increase of taxes, and the enactment of various forms of regulatory legislation. In these political activities, as in every other undertaking, the railroad organization was efficient and successful. But as public sentiment grew more hostile, anti-railroad agitation began to be resorted to as an easy means of obtaining votes, and anti-railroad legislation, some of which was legitimate, some ultra-radical, and some scarcely concealed form of blackmail, had to be fought in every session of the legislature. The railroad organization was also vitally interested in the congressmen and senators California sent to Washington, and in the character of such bodies as the State Board of Railroad Commissioners and the State Board of Equalization, with its powers of revision over tax assessments. In fact, since the interests of the Southern Pacific Company were so extremely varied that it could be benefited or injured in a hundred different ways by as many political bodies throughout the state, there was virtually no limit to the official appointments and legislative issues in which it was concerned. Eventually, as already stated, these political activities of the railroad came to be accepted by the people of California as the chief cause of the unsatisfactory nature of their government. The influence of the Southern Pacific machine was popularly supposed to extend from the governor of the state to the lowest ward healer in San Francisco, and to determine who should sit in city councils and on boards of supervisors, who should be sent to the House of Representatives and to the Senate at Washington, what laws should be enacted by the legislature, and what decisions should be rendered from the bench. That the officials of the Southern Pacific could not be convicted of any direct violation of the law in their political activities made no great difference to the public mind. Men, for example, pointed to the election of Stanford to the United States Senate in 1885 as an evidence of the railroad's power, and the story got abroad that he had spent a quarter of a million dollars to ensure the necessary votes. After the death of Colton, one of the important builders of the Southern Pacific Railroad, certain letters which had been written by Huntington to Colton were submitted as evidence in a suit brought by Colton's widow against her husband's former associates. Extracts from these letters, which dealt principally with Huntington's activities in Washington, the desirability of passing certain measures in the California, Arizona, and New Mexico legislatures, and the election of candidates favorable to the railroad interests, influenced the public mind still further against the Southern Pacific Company. Beginning in the early 90s, moreover, and extending over half a decade, the Southern California public, particularly, had what was commonly regarded as unmistakable evidence of the Southern Pacific's influence in national politics. The issue involved was that of constructing a deep-water harbor at San Pedro. This port, famous in the old days of the hide and tallow trade, furnished the logical outlet of Southern California railroads to the sea, and was the natural entrepot for all the territory tributary to Los Angeles. The roadstead, however, was badly exposed at certain seasons of the year, 
and required the erection of an expensive breakwater to render it secure. The required appropriation for this depended necessarily upon the federal government, and though a number of small appropriations for dredging the estuary or so-called inner harbor had been made, Congress seemed little disposed to provide the necessary funds for the larger undertaking. In the early stages of the movement, the Huntington interests, in common with other influential organizations, backed the San Pedro enterprise. Later, for reasons variously explained, the Southern Pacific broke away from its former associates, became the bitter opponent of the San Pedro appropriation, and advocated the creation of a port some two miles north of the town of Santa Monica, where the company itself had just erected a costly wharf, familiarly known in after years as the Long Wharf, reaching a mile out to sea. For many years, the fight over this harbor question went on, until it became the most hotly contested issue in Southern California politics. The Southern Pacific program was backed by various newspapers and a number of the most influential citizens of Los Angeles. On the other hand, the fight for San Pedro was carried on by a strong coalition composed of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, the recently organized Los Angeles Terminal Railways, and the Los Angeles Times, of which Harrison Gray Otis, for many years the most unique figure in journalism on the Pacific coast, had not long since become proprietor. The San Pedro cause, moreover, found an effective representative in the United States Senate in the person of Stephen M. White of Los Angeles. Few Californians in public life have enjoyed either the national distinction or the local admiration which fell to Senator White during his political career, and nothing contributed more to this popularity than his vigorous fight for the free harbor at San Pedro. Only the most general summary of the long-drawn-out contest can be given here. The hearings before the committee and the speeches in Congress were filled with technical discussions of the relative merits of the two ports. Currents, prevailing winds, holding grounds, and a hundred kindred subjects figured in the controversy, to the great confusion of the lay mind and without much enlightenment to Congress. The upshot was that for four years, neither side could gain an appreciable advantage, and the government failed to make an appropriation for either port. In 1896, however, a special board of engineers, known as the Walker Board, from Admiral John G. Walker, its chairman, was appointed to make an examination of the two ports and recommend one or the other for the congressional appropriation. After several months of investigation, this body brought in a voluminous report signed by four of the five members in which San Pedro was favored as the location for a deep-water harbor for commerce and a refuge in Southern California. Though Congress had intended the findings of this board to be final, and had authorized the actual work to begin when its decision was made, a further delay of two years ensued in carrying out the project. The common opinion of that day laid the blame for this upon Secretary of War Alger, who was accused of using his position to block the San Pedro enterprise at Huntington's instigation. Indeed, whatever merit the Santa Monica plan may have had, the Southern California public for the most part saw in it only an attempt of the Southern Pacific to shut other railroads away from deep water so that its monopoly might not be interfered with, 
and to control a great public enterprise for its own ends. Along with the public sentiment against the railroad arising from its actual or alleged political activities, went a hostility based upon economic grounds. The large land holdings of the company itself, and of the individuals connected with it, still remained a source of aggravation to the public mind. The rebates and discriminations which were still practiced in California, as in other states, increased this discontent. Particularly in the agricultural sections, men felt themselves so much at the mercy of the railroad that they became obsessed with a feeling of bitter futility, which was well summed up in the popular expression, out of three drops of rain which fall in the San Joaquin Valley, two are owned by Collis P. Huntington. The failure of the State Board of Railroad Commissioners, which had been so vigorously fought for in the Constitutional Convention of 1879, to order great reductions in freight and passenger rates, was especially galling to the public mind. It is true that very substantial reductions had been made from the high rates of the 70s, but these were not sufficient to satisfy the popular demand, and the Railroad Commission was looked upon as having fallen, like other political bodies, under Southern Pacific domination. The common opinion of the day regarding that body was thus expressed by S. E. Moffat, writing in 1896. Quote, the curious fact remains that a body created 16 years ago for the sole purpose of curbing a single railroad corporation with a strong hand was found to be uniformly, without a break during all that period, its apologist and defender. Not a single majority report was ever issued from the office of the Railroad Commission of a nature unsatisfactory to the company the commission was established to control, so that the net result of the popular agitation for the new constitution in 1878 and of the various anti-monopoly agitations since has been the creation of a new Southern Pacific Literary Bureau maintained at public expense. End quote. Though the Southern Pacific Railroad was the most outstanding object of popular suspicion and dislike, it did not have a complete monopoly of this distinction. Public service companies and large corporations generally, many of which hid behind the skirts of the Southern Pacific and profited from its political activities, came in for their share of condemnation. Writing in 1897 while mayor of San Francisco, James D. Phelan summed up the current view as follows, quote, We have the suspected corruption of public bodies, legislators, and supervisors, and even courts are exposed to the machinations of the corporations, which, with the Southern Pacific Company, the overshadowing monopoly of the state, have been classified by the people in impotent wrath as the associated villainies. They have debauched politics and established a government within a government, more powerful in normal times than the state government itself. This hostility to the railroad and to corporation interests in general was, of course, not confined to California. Nor was the movement which later brought a new order of affairs and politics, established a new relation between government and corporations, and brought a change in public sentiment towards such companies confined to the state boundaries. In California, however, there were certain influences which made this movement particularly effective. Not the least of these was the development of a large middle-class population, especially after 1900, 
with means, education, and leisure enough to take an active and intelligent interest in political affairs. It is almost unnecessary to add that many of these newcomers were from the Middle Western states and brought with them an instinctive desire for a political experiment. Before any particular change occurred in the state government, however, the two largest cities of California underwent a pretty thorough political overhauling, and the influence of these municipal reforms very materially affected the whole state. In 1902, the government of San Francisco passed into the hands of a notorious combination known as the Roof-Schmitz regime. Though Schmitz was nominally mayor, the real leader of the organization was Abraham Roof, a man of shrewd ability but of very low political ideals. Masquerading behind the livery of the Labor Union Party, Roof and Schmitz succeeded in building up a very effective political machine and after once attaining the office, kept the city under their control for six disgraceful years. The revenue which was necessary to keep the machine intact came from many sources. An organized ring in control of illegal prize fights in the city contributed liberally to the Roof Schmidt's exchequer. So also did privileged gambling houses, saloons, dens of the Barbary Coast, and more respectable establishments in other parts of the city euphemistically known as French restaurants. These, however, were not the worst aspects of the system of government from which San Francisco suffered. The more outstanding evil of the Roof Schmidt's administration was the relation between the municipal officials and certain important public services corporations within the city. These companies, like the saloons and brothels, also paid tribute to the political machine. Whether they were victims of official blackmail under which they could operate and obtain legitimate franchises only as they resorted to bribery, or whether, in order to secure privileges and immunities hurtful to the public interest, they were willing to corrupt the very springs of government, is too largely a matter of individual opinion for discussion at this time. Irrespective of where the primary guilt lay, it was obvious that the people of San Francisco were suffering in many tangible ways from a moral collapse in municipal affairs. By 1906, conditions had become so bad that a small group of citizens, including Fremont Older of the San Francisco Bulletin, Rudolph Spreckles, and James D. Phelan, set about a systematic campaign to clean up the government and punish the chief criminals. Aided by President Roosevelt, this group engaged the services of Francis J. Haney, who had just won national distinction from his prosecution of certain timber frauds in Oregon, and also of William Burns, later of the United States Secret Service. Before much headway had been made in the investigations, however, the great earthquake and fire of April 18th reduced the city to ruins and temporarily checked the reform movement. The confusion arising from the great disaster to San Francisco afforded even larger opportunities for graft than Schmidt and Roof had previously enjoyed. While the people of the stricken community, with unquenched optimism, were planning to rebuild their city on a more substantial basis, the United Railways Company, which at that time monopolized the local traction business, secured from the Board of Supervisors permission to continue operations under an overhead trolley franchise, instead of installing an underground cable system similar to that in use in Washington, D.C. 
In this transaction, the company was charged with having paid $200,000 to secure the necessary votes. The unearthing of this and many other instances of graft by the backers of the reform program and the prosecution of the most notorious offenders occupied months of time and aroused the bitterest antagonism. At the very outset of the investigation, Roof sought to remove the district attorney, W. H. Langdon, an honest man who had slipped into office through inadvertence on Roof's part, and to have himself appointed to the office in Langdon's stead. Failing this, he also lost control of the grand jury, and along with Schmitz had to face indictment and trial. The supervisors, eighteen in number, were completely cornered and forced to confess their part in the corruption from which the city had suffered for so many years. So long as Haney and his supporters confined their attention to Roof, Schmitz, and the supervisors, public opinion ran strongly in their favor. But with the next step, the trial of Patrick Calhoun and Thierry L. Ford of the United Railways, the graft prosecution, as the movement was now called, at once lost support in many quarters. As the trial proceeded, San Francisco experienced something of the old excitement and tenseness of vigilante days. Most of the newspapers turned against the prosecution, with a bitterness of invective rarely equaled in California journalism. Attempted intimidation gave place to actual violence. One of the supervisors named Gallagher, whose testimony was vital to the prosecution, had his house blown up with dynamite. Fremont Older was kidnapped and carried as far south as Santa Barbara in what was believed to be an abortive attempt to bring about his assassination. Haney was shot in the head while conducting the prosecution, but escaped a mortal wound. His assailant, apparently deranged, was imprisoned and later committed suicide. For two years and more, the graft prosecution continued. Every technicality known to the law was made use of to save the accused men. Juries were tampered with, witnesses intimidated, and public opinion befogged. The United Railway officials escaped conviction through a divided jury and succeeded in having the remaining indictments dismissed. Officials of other public service corporations charged with similar violations of the law were never brought to trial. Schmitz was saved on a technicality by the state Supreme Court. Roof alone was sent to the penitentiary. The direct results of the attempt to punish misgovernment in San Francisco were thus disappointingly meager from the standpoint of decent citizenship. But the indirect effects of the graft prosecution were much more significant than would have been the conviction of any number of guilty citizens or corrupt officials. The evidence submitted at the trials of these men might not be sufficient to send them to prison, but it convicted them overwhelmingly in the public mind and, more important still, laid bare the evil workings of the system which they symbolized. Through the San Francisco graft investigation, the people of the state were both enlightened and aroused. Incidentally, too, the municipal government of San Francisco, for some time after the Roof Schmitz exposure, was honestly and efficiently administered by Mayor Taylor. In the midst of San Francisco's unsavory disclosures, Similar evidences of corruption were found in the municipal government of Los Angeles. As early as 1907, it was pretty generally surmised that certain city officials, headed by Mayor A.C. Harper, 
were in league with the disreputable elements of the underworld. Appointments to office were made without any regard to the fitness of the individual, and often included men of notoriously evil character. The moral sense of the city was outraged, and its fears aroused lest the building of the great Owens River aqueduct, then on foot, should lead to wholesale raids upon the municipal treasury. On January 7, 1909, Mr. T. E. Gibbon, the editor of the Los Angeles Herald, began the real reform crusade with a series of articles entitled, Is Vice Protected in Los Angeles? These articles were run in wide columns enclosed in red borders. Accompanying the editorials were open letters to the chief of police, giving undeniable evidence of the existence of scores of gambling centers and houses of prostitution in the city. Diagrams of the buildings where these illegal practices flourished, with almost no attempt at concealment, were skillfully added to give the needed touch of definiteness to the accusations. A clever cartoonist with something of the art of Thomas Nast furnished a still stronger appeal to the popular indignation. The direct connection between the violators of the law and the city administration was next revealed by the Herald's investigations. Three sugar companies, known respectively as the Pacific Sugar Corporation, the Pacific Sugar Company, and the Pacific Securities Corporation, had been organized by the mayor and his intimate associates. Stock in the companies to a par value of $250,000 was then sold to the brewers, the saloon keepers, and the cafe proprietors holding liquor licenses throughout the city. An oil company known as the Utah Los Angeles Oil Company was similarly organized and its stock marketed among the city's vicious elements, greatly to the profit of the mayor and his companions. From the standpoint of the purchasers, this stock was valuable only as its possession brought immunity from police interference. The Herald's crusade was continued until March 26th. In the meantime, the Evening Express, the Municipal League, and the District Attorney joined in the campaign. A minority of the grand jury also brought in a scathing report against the city administration. As a result of these revelations, a general uprising began against Harper and all that he represented. The mayor's efforts to allay popular indignation by substituting better men for those previously appointed to the office proved futile. A recall petition was circulated, and in the ensuing election, Harper, realizing his hopeless position and fearing further disclosures, did not venture to appear as a candidate. George Alexander, formerly a county supervisor, was elected mayor, and a new era in Los Angeles politics began. The San Francisco and Los Angeles Reform Crusades did much to strengthen a political revolt which had started as early as 1906. Under the suggestive name of the Lincoln-Roosevelt League, this movement was formally organized in Oakland, August 1, 1907. Though nominally Republican in composition, the League had most of the characteristics of a nonpartisan movement. Its platform, as originally announced, was as follows, quote, The emancipation of the Republican Party in California from domination by the political bureau of the Southern Pacific Railroad Company and allied interests, and the reorganization of the state committee to that end. The selection of delegates to the next Republican National Convention 
pledged to vote and to work for the nominations of a candidate for president known to be truly committed to and identified with President Roosevelt's policies and to oppose the nomination of any reactionary style safe and sane by the great corporate interests. The election of a free, honest, and capable legislature truly representative of the common interests of the people of California. The pledging of all delegates to conventions against the iniquitous practice of trading, whereby political bosses affect nominations by bargains and sale, and the enactment of legislation penalizing such practices. The enactment by the next legislature of such laws as will give voters an advisory voice in the election of United States Senators until such time as an amendment to the national constitution shall make that voice direct and absolute, which amendment we favor. The pledging of the candidate for the legislature to the enactment of such a primary election law as shall afford the party voter a direct voice in the selection of party candidates. End quote. The program of the Lincoln-Roosevelt League was thus in keeping with a changed attitude toward social, economic, and political questions which was just then beginning to sweep over the United States. The old generation was rapidly passing away, and men everywhere were ready for new standards, new schemes of government, new political catchwords, and new leaders. Almost from the outset, the Lincoln-Roosevelt League gained rapid headway in California. Much of its success was due to the newspaper support which it received. In Los Angeles, the Evening Express and later the Morning Tribune aligned themselves with the new movement. Chester H. Rowell's Fresno Republican accorded something of the same infallibility in the San Joaquin Valley that Greeley's Tribune had once enjoyed in New York, also championed the League. The Sacramento Bee, the San Francisco Bulletin, the Oakland Tribune, and a dozen other newspapers in various sections of the state likewise threw themselves into the new cause with an enthusiasm in which the zeal to purify politics was perhaps not wholly divorced from the desire to increase circulation. The movement was also fortunate in finding capable and vigorous leadership. Chief of its leaders, at least in his ability to command popular support, was Hiram Johnson. The final estimate of this man's character and the place he should occupy in the state's political history must be left to the future's judgment. We of the present generation stand too close to see him in his true perspective. But whatever judgment history may finally pass upon Johnson, if indeed she finds it necessary to pass any judgment at all, friend and foe alike will admit his ability to win popular support. For nearly a decade he dictated the course of California politics. The Lincoln-Roosevelt League, which formally merged into the Progressive Party in 1913, gained a partial control over the legislature of 1909 and won a complete victory in the election of the next year. It is doubtful if public interest in California had ever been so keenly aroused by a state election since the bitter rivalries of Broderick and Gwynn fifty years before. The campaign took on something of the character of a crusade, especially directed against the evils of the so-called machine government and the participation of corporations in politics. Because of the traditional unpopularity of the Southern Pacific Company in California, that corporation had to bear the brunt of these attacks, 
and to the great majority of voters the campaign became simply a concerted movement to drive the southern pacific out of politics and destroy the old machine as a matter of fact however the southern pacific even before the election approached had ceased most of its political activities and took no part in the campaign the following statement recently made by one of the company's chief officials frankly states the position of the southern pacific at that time after the lapse of more than a decade since the election it ought at least to be read in a spirit of fairness Quote, in time it became obvious to the managers of the company that the disadvantages of these political activities so far outbalanced any possible benefits the company would derive from them that it became the policy to discontinue whatever political activities existed and after eighteen ninety three it was the constant effort of the company to divorce itself from its former relations to politics this it had largely succeeded in doing prior to the time of governor johnson's election in nineteen ten in this campaign the company took no part here and there individuals who were friendly to the company would naturally continue their political efforts and no doubt some of these cases were referred to as proof that the company was engaged in this campaign it was fortunate that governor johnson's campaign bristling with hostility to the interference of corporations in politics and especially the southern pacific company afforded that company a most favorable opportunity for terminating its political activities because the election of governor johnson was considered by the public to be a defeat for the company and as the company was careful to avoid any possible political activity thereafter it came to be accepted by the people of the state that the company was out of politics a consummation welcomed by the officials of the company with great cordiality the control of the governorship and the state legislature after nineteen ten gave to the lincoln roosevelt leaders free scope to put their platform into practical effect this was done with a thoroughness not usual in political affairs measures like the referendum the initiative the recall the direct primary and the popular election of united states senators to render the government more responsive to popular will were grafted on to the constitution laws affecting conditions of labor were freely enacted additional powers were bestowed upon the state railway commission and its jurisdiction extended over other public utility corporations throughout the state in this fashion the lincoln roosevelt league fulfilled its pledge and california began another stage in her political career as an american state End of chapter twenty eight